Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. This podcast provides analysis of the DC films from Warner Brothers Pictures. This episode was written by myself, Alessandro Maniscalco, Rebecca Johnson, and Sydney. You can find us on Twitter, and you can follow the show at JLU Podcast. In this episode, we cover scenes 36 and 37 of Wonder Woman, which are the scenes where the Oddfellows make their way toward the German High Command Gala. Before we get into those scenes, we have two quick notes about prior scenes. First of all, in our discussion of the Veld rescue action scene, we did compare the fight there to Batman's Martha rescue scene from Batman v Superman, but we forgot to give a credit to stunt coordinator and second unit director Damon Caro. He was lead on both of those action scenes, and so if you're like us and thought they were both really solidly choreographed and filmed, then a lot of that credit goes to Caro. He worked with Patty Jenkins on Wonder Woman, but he's also worked quite often with Zack Snyder, doing not only BVS, but also basically all of Snyder's previous movies, even Legend of the Guardians, where Caro helped design the animated action sequences. The other thing we wanted to mention was a brief connection that we made recently between a Scottish author and a character in Wonder Woman. Uh, but that character is not actually Charlie. Back in scene 33, after the Veld rescue, Samir said to Diana that everyone is fighting their own battles. We talked about this sentiment as an important thing to keep in mind whenever you are interacting with other people, be they coworkers, family, friends, or strangers. Well, we can also tie this line from Samir directly to Scottish writer Ian McLaren, a.k.a. John Watson, who said something similar. He wrote, Be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Of course, it's good advice to be kind. This is what my wife and I tell our kids when we take them to school. The most important thing is to be kind to everyone. It's like Henry James said, three things are important. The first is to be kind, the second is to be kind, and the third is to be kind. But what I really like about the McLaren quote is that it not only directs us to be kind, but it also gives us motivation to be kind. Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. It tells us to consider the other person and to realize that we don't know what they're going through, but it's definitely something, so that's why we should be kind. And this might seem very basic, but I think it's important too, especially given the fact that new reports have found that the suicide rate in the U.S. has gone up sharply over the past 15 years. We really could use more kindness. It can literally save lives. And we also wanted to mention that if you or someone you know are at risk for suicide, there are people who can help, such as Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. All right, so let's go into the new scenes. Diana and Steve just had their magical night together. So scene 36 starts with some morning lighting and a new color palette of yellows and reds. It's like the sun is shining down as a blessing upon Veld, now freed from the grim grays of the war. The streets are once more populated by the residents and not an occupying army. The first shot here in the scene, and also the sounds at the beginning, are focused on horses, which is also a nice contrast to the horses that were stuck in the mud and getting whipped before the trench scene. The guys here are tending to some horses, and Samir tells Diana that they were given them by the villagers. Chief calls them a gracious gift, which suggests a mutual appreciation. Samir also says that the villagers called them heroes. We discussed how they all acted heroically, so when Diana responds, you are, she's not merely feeding his ego, but acknowledging the real risks they took and the bravery they showed. Samir stands taller than usual with a newfound pride and seems to be genuinely touched by the acknowledgements. Steve talks to the guys about the deal that they had made, that the job would only be two days. And so the Oddfellows are not really bound anymore by the deal. And although Steve and Diana would certainly benefit from their continued assistance, 
As a man of honor, he holds true to his word and says, a deal's a deal. Chief, in a half-joking, half-serious manner, states that Steve would get lost without them. On one level, he clearly means that they would get lost geographically, but on another level, as an audience, we can think about how Steve and Diana might end up losing their mission without them, or they might lose themselves in the cruelties of war that await them. For example, imagine if Diana gave in to her anger and disappointment in mankind instead of choosing the side of love. It is partially her companionship with the Oddfellows that makes sure she doesn't get lost in that way. Samir adds that while they all know Diana is capable of taking care of herself, something which they saw firsthand in No Man's Land in the Battle for Veld, he is worried that Steve won't make it. Once again, deeper meaning can be garnered from these words. Steve might not survive the struggles ahead of them, and ultimately he will in fact lose his life in pursuit of their cause. But if he were to survive, would he come out in one piece or be a changed man? Anyway, this comment by Samir is yet another foreshadowing of Steve's death at the end of the film. And it's yet another foreshadowing that's couched in humor, so it's pretty sneaky and it's easy to miss the first time you watch the film. Steve continues by saying that there's no more money. And the group did initially take the job primarily for the money. And we suppose a photo of Diana for Samir. But this shows the growth of their characters and a shift in priorities when Samir tells Steve that they've been paid enough. So while we start out with the impression that they're a bunch of unruly mercenaries, we now see them in a new light, just like the village is in a new light this morning. There is a selfless and compassionate side to them who want to do good and want to protect their friend who they care about. Now thus far, Charlie has been silent, but we're going to shift to Charlie here for a moment with the dialogue. Although he shares the same sentiment of friendship, he has doubts about joining them. He's thinking that maybe they would actually be better without him. He looks away from them after he says this, and averting his eyes like that kind of suggests that it's hard for him to bring up his failure the day before with the sharpshooter. And he's graciously trying to give the, the team an out if they want to be looking to get rid of him. But Diana, empathetic toward Charlie and having learned a bit about him already at the campfire and in talking to Samir the day before, she chimes in to reject his notion. She eases his mind with a sense of belonging by suggesting that they need him to sing for them. Obviously, singing is not an essential skill needed in their subsequent mission, but the real intentions are understood. She's saying that, of course, they still want him with them. This shows a new kind of leadership from Diana. The day before, she showed leadership in going out into no man's land and doing the heavy lifting in the rescue of Veld, and now she's showing that she understands another important part of leadership, which is to have meaningful relationships with your team and to make each person feel valued and respected. Steve agrees with Diana, and uh, to help in making Charlie feel included in the way that guys often do, Samir breaks his chops by criticizing his singing. Charlie's spirits are quickly lifted, and he begins to sing to Diana, who smiles joyously. This dynamic shows the connection they have to one another, and how much they each care for each other. We can also get a sense from this scene, and the scenes leading up to it, that they are stronger together, a theme that will persist through to Justice League. And it's Diana, both here and in Justice League, who serves as a leader in her compassion and making others feel valued, such as with Cyborg. There's a humorous cut when we shift from the town, where they're standing with the horses, to the forest, where they're riding the horses. And we get some humor because Charlie had just started singing the folk song, Green Grow the Rashes. And then right after the cut, we hear him singing in the distance another line from that song, The Sweetest Hours That E'er I Spend. So it's funny to think that he's been belting it for the whole time in between the cut. And by the way, that song by the Scottish poet Robert Burns talks about not pursuing earthly treasures, but instead cherishing your time spent with women. 
So that actually connects directly with what we were just saying about the Oddfellows moving beyond the incentive of money. And also, they're going forward with Diana as a fully embraced member of their team. When they started, they were very skeptical of having a woman on the team, and now they cherish having a woman as part of their group. And actually, not just a member of the group, but a leader, which was shown now by her riding at the front of the group. This is a shift from how they were trying to pull her along in the trenches and they were trying to direct her where to go. Now she's out front for the moment. Speaking again about the scene's colors, the forest here gives us a new color palette of greens and browns thanks to the foliage. It's a nice focus on life in contrast to the morbidity of war in the previous scenes. The temporary escape from the war allows for the Oddfellows to have some lighthearted dialogue, but dialogue that connects to the main plot as well. We come into the middle of the conversation, and it's clear that Steve has been telling them about Diana's background and her actual intentions. Like a little angel and devil on Steve's shoulders, Charlie and Samir ride on either side of him as he tells them about Themyscira, an island of only women just like Diana. Charlie, the naysayer, is skeptical about such an island, while Samir, the libidinous sentimentalist, is intrigued and wants to go there. The two continue their roles as devil and angel, offering skepticism and openness to the notion that Ludendorff is Ares and must be killed to end the war. Samir brings up Diana's amazing feats back in Veld and says maybe it's true. And Chief says that he believes it, which Samir immediately clings to. Although Steve stays silent for the moment, we are drawn in to wondering what he actually does think. Has he moved beyond his earlier skepticism expressed back on the boat? This is effective writing that pulls the audience in, having us lean forward toward answers about the characters, while also moving forward toward the next location in the plot. And of course, you know, even though Charlie asks Steve right now and Steve doesn't answer about whether he believes it, we eventually find out what Steve thinks about all of this at the gala. But right now, he looks pensive as if undecided, somewhere in between Samir and Chief's decidedly accepting opinion and Charlie's total rubbish opinion. Moving into scene 37, we get some nice establishing shots of a Belgian castle. Though in reality, the exterior shots were filmed at Arundel Castle in West Sussex, England, and the interiors are actually from Hatfield House in Hertfordshire. Now, although we have just talked about Diana showing some leadership abilities, she is not the sole leader of the group. Steve has a much longer history with the group, and he was technically the one who brought them together for the mission. So now that they've arrived at the location of the gala, he exerts himself again as leader. He tells Diana to hide, and a few more times in this scene, and then in the next couple scenes as well, he will tell Diana what to do. And this tension of who calls the shots will all come to a head when she shoves him aside in the gala. As we've said in other episodes, like with No Man's Land, a cinematic moment is not just effective because of how it's executed in that moment, but also because of how it's set up. And that will also be true for the forthcoming moment. What I do is not up to you. It's effective in how they film it there in the gala, but it's also set up by all these little times that Steve tells Diana what to do or not do. Charlie checks out the location through his sniper scope, so he's at least good for that, even if he can't shoot with it. He notices some guards, and Steve is trying to think about how to get in. Diana says that she could get in, but he tells her that she's going to have to stay here, hidden outside. He tells her it's too dangerous, which she thinks is ridiculous, probably because of everything that she's already proven herself capable of. And Steve also says that she's too distracting and that what she's wearing isn't exactly undercover. This is a great setup to the blue dress scene later, when it's actually Steve who's going to be distracted by her. Samir sticks up for Diana, but I don't think the line here uh, was very great. Um, Steve says she's not exactly undercover, and Samir says, 
I don't know, I'd say she was pretty undercover on that battlefield. I know the intention behind the line, but it just doesn't quite work for me. And when Charlie snickers at it, it seems kind of forced. Um, but that's a, mi a very minor complaint. Steve reminds us about the danger of the new poison gas and says that they should go in and gather some information before their next move. Diana wants to make the move now. She's probably looking at the castle and thinking she can climb it like she did with the stone tower on Themyscira. But Steve says she can't go into high command and kill anyone. So his subtle directives towards Diana, to hide, that she's not going in, that he's decided it's too dangerous for her, they've all crescendoed now into this ultimatum that she is not allowed to pursue her primary directive here, which is to kill Ares. Now thus far in these scenes, Samir and Charlie have gotten most of the character beats. But this next moment here is Chief's moment to shine, because while they've been debating, he just went ahead and found a way in. He pulls up in a car, and he has a genuinely funny line. Where'd the car come from? A field over there. It's full of them. I like how he's saying it like as he's walking back up the hill. It's really good timing. And so Steve and Samir head into the car, with Samir excited to act as a chauffeur. And as soon as Steve has stepped away, Diana sets out on her own, because she's going to do what she thinks needs to be done. There's a funny, almost Batman-like moment when Charlie and Chief realize that she's gone. And then we get some more humor with Samir and Steve approaching the entrance. I really like the nervous energy that Samir has when he's driving the vehicle, uh, and in addition to the humor of the dialogue and Chris Pine's tenor German accent that's coming up, there's also the sight gag of Steve adjusting his pipe before anyone notices. So there's humor happening in a lot of different ways here. And speaking of the pipe, by the way, um, that might be an homage to the history of the character of Steve Trevor, but we couldn't confirm it, so if you're well-versed in Steve Trevor lore, please let us know if he has a history with a pipe. The interaction with the guard showcases Steve and Samir's natural chemistry and ability to adjust to the situation. And for Samir especially, it's a payoff of the scene where we met him as a con man, and to the earlier conversation with Diana about him actually wanting to be an actor. Samir's performance, Steve's feigned anger with him, and then the impatient cars waiting in line all help to get them waved into the gala. Before they pull in, Steve notices the lines of chairs being set up outside which foreshadow the horrific display that is planned for later, as Ludendorff will gas Veld just beyond there in the distance. So, by the way, if they can see Veld from here, the horseback ride may not have been as long as it seemed. Although, if this castle is up on a hill, which it probably is, it looks like it is, um, you can actually see for quite a long distance from that vantage point. So it's plausible that they did have kind of a long ride to here. The last beat in the scene is nicely connected. That line of vehicles that we just heard honking impatiently behind Steve and Samir, well, now we go to that same line of vehicles, but we're seeing it now from Diana's point of view as she's looking at it from the edge of the forest. And there's still some more humor to be had here, um, this time from the pretentious and self-entitled rich lady, Fausta. And we feel, by the way, that this humor, there's a lot of it here in scenes 36 and 37, we think it's well-placed because these are transitional scenes between the action and the danger of the battle for Veld and then the destruction of Veld that's coming up later. This is a break in the tension after they've saved Veld, so in these scenes, it's very appropriate to fit in as much humor as is natural with the characters. Where our team tends to get annoyed with humor in these superhero movies of any, you know, franchise, is when the humor is unnaturally injected right into a fight or what is supposed to be a tense scene. But here, the lady and her unwillingness to wait in line with everyone else uh, like this, you know, inconvenience for her is, is on the par with all the damage and destruction that we've seen leveled on other people in this war. 
and then her posh appearance, which also seems separate from the actual damage in Heartbreak of War, and the fact that this dress is pretty ill-fitting on her, it all strikes us as pretty funny. In a huff, she gets out of her vehicle and starts walking, where she encounters Diana. She laughs at her and says, what are you supposed to be? Which is kind of a preview line of what Ludendorff's going to say in scene 42. What are you? Diana silently sizes up the lady, and we can infer what's going through Diana's mind. But smartly, the filmmakers don't actually show us what happens here between Diana and Fausta. They just give us this brief tease, and then they wait for the big reveal, which happens in the gala itself. That's our analysis of scenes 36 and 37 of Wonder Woman. Next up, we'll go into the gala, which is one of the centerpiece settings for the film, and leads to a crucial turn in the plot, kicking things into full momentum for Act 3. To close, we thank the Suicide Squad cast for covering the latest DC news and Man of Steel answers for in-depth DCEU analysis. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening, and we invite you to check out the reward packages we have available at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash jlupodcast. There's already a bonus episode posted there, and Rebecca has been very excited to generate other ideas for bonus content, so we will have them coming soon to our patrons.